All right, I want to start. Um, this way. We have a little, um, little bit of time, extra time, just a little bit, and uh, we're a small enough group this morning. I want to, I want to do a little bit of group discussion to start out. So, let's play like word association. When I say, I'm gonna take my mask off. When I say um, evangelism or outreach. Or Seth's eyes just, eyebrows just popped up. Uh, evangelism, outreach, witness, things like that. Uh, what comes to mind for you, positive or negative? Just shout it out. Okay? Say more. Sure. So take witness. What comes to mind when you think of that? Okay. <laughs> and evangelism? Yeah, yeah, sure, I figured. What else? What comes to mind? Experiences you've had, stories you've heard? Pressure. Pressure, yep. What else? Good news. Good news. What else? Positive or negative? Does anyone else relate to the pressure feeling? That's where I'm going to start here in a minute. Maybe one or two more. Other thoughts? Well, for me, I grew up, like I, I know many of us did, I grew up in the kind of broadly conservative evangelical culture and church. Um, and so my relationship with the concept of evangelism or outreach um, was pretty complicated. I resonate quite a bit with the word pressure, actually, because part of what would happen is, and some of you, if you grew up in similar kind of culture, maybe you'll relate to this, but part of what would happen is I would, I had it in my mind, it was outreach, witness, was something I had to do. Um, and so part of what would happen is I would sometimes tie myself in knots. I'd be in an interaction with someone. Maybe some of you can relate to this. I'd be in an interaction with someone and signals would come up and I'd realize, oh, this person's not a Christian, or I would assume they're not a Christian. And then I would start to tie myself in knots and mental gymnastics, trying to think about how I could steer the interaction towards a some sort of opportunity, right? Uh, start to, to manipulate the setting to start to talk about church or faith or religion or something. So there would be a lot of this internal pressure to kind of manipulate uh, what was going on. Or conversely, if I didn't do that, if I just talked to the person and then left, afterwards, I would tie myself in knots. <laughs> Erica's nodding. I would tie myself in knots thinking, why didn't I do that? I, I'm such a coward. I'm not even like, you know, brave enough to, I don't know, uh, to risk, take that risk, you know. And so either way, it's just a lot of either in the interaction or after the interaction, there's a lot of mental gymnastics and pressure and kind of self-condemnation. Um, interestingly, if you think about that part of that dynamic, the common thread there is I usually wasn't listening or with, with the person, right? Because I'm just so focused on how do I change the interaction or what should or shouldn't I do? And then in the meantime, this other person is just missed. Um, something has gone off there. If that's the experience, I would say, of outreach and evangelism. Um, a lot, uh, we could comment a lot about what's gone wrong there, I think. And that's not going to be the major focus of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, but one of the things I do want to say is that as I've been reflecting on that experience and the topic this morning is the topic of engaging the world, kind of that out, outreach, outward focus. Um, part of what I think was unfortunate about my experience, and if you can relate, can anyone relate to what I was just articulating? So anyone can, okay, good, good. It's not just me. Part of what's unfortunate about that as I reflect on it is it never felt 
natural. It never felt like this outward kind of outreach engagement. And that never felt naturally integrated into my kind of experience as a, as a person of faith. It felt like an extra thing. It felt like I had my faith and then there was this extra thing on top I had to also do. Um, and it didn't, it didn't feel holistic. Um, so a big, a big thrust of what I want to talk about this morning is that engaging the world is something that's part and parcel of what it means to be, to follow Christ in our culture. Um, but it's something that, um, as we are, our, our theme is renewal. As we are renewed, it's something that, um, that naturally happens. It's something that God leads us through. It's something that flows out of our renewed life. And it's also not individualistic. It's not, it's corporate, right? It's out of our life together as a renewed people. Um, we become a community that, that is engaged with the world. That's kind of the big idea. Um, and I want to, before um, diving into the text, we're going to look at a very, very short text to unpack this some more. Um, before doing that, I want to recap just where we've been. So um, this, has been a, this is the last sermon in the renewal kind of series. Next week, we're going to start a series on Philippians. Um, but first, we started talking about worship um, and locating God as the source of our salvation and worship being the declaration of, of God's deeds, Right? Um, and declaring that God is the glorious one who can actually save us. Prayer, Danny talked about asking for more heaven on earth. That interaction with God to bring more heaven to earth is, is an act of prayer. Um, the unity of the community, um, speaking about our recognition of our need of each other and our each other's gifts, brings a powerful unity. And then Ethan spoke last week about community and the recognition of our status as forgiven people so that we can then forgive others and seek renewed community together. Now, I think this is not an exhaustive list. When we talk about renewal, renewal, renewal encompasses a lot of things. So um, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not a formula. But, but I do really believe that to the extent, just pause and think about, to the extent that we are a community, if we can be a community that worships, that prays, that is unified and loving in our community towards each other, when I really believe to the extent that we are marked by all of those things working together, we will engage the world just by virtue of our presence here, by virtue of our presence in the city, by virtue of how we live, how we live before those that we interact with. It will just flow out of this deep renewal um, that I've just become really convicted to, to, to pray and long for. Um, so tonight, or tonight, this morning, we're going to uh, focus on this idea of engagement. Um, let me pray for us, and then um, we'll dive into a, a short text. Uh, Lord, I, um, I pray for your spirit. I pray for a sensitivity to your spirit this morning in this conversation. Um, and I also ask for your renewal. Lord, would you keep renewing us? Do your good work. I pray that we would be a community that is renewed and deeply, powerfully engaged with our culture and our world. That we would spread the fragrance of Christ everywhere everywhere we, we are. Um, in your holy name we pray. Amen. So to, to unpack this, we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a few short verses. So go ahead and, um, if you have a text, go ahead and flip to that. We're literally going to look at about three verses. It's a, it's a very short section. Chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And I want to step through this. 
So, this, this letter, just really, really quickly, this is by virtue of number two. It's the second letter we have between Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the community in Corinth, hence the name Corinthians. It's the, the church in the city of Corinth. Um, we actually know there were more letters back and forth. Um, we have two of them uh, in the New Testament. Um, so, all I want to say about the context of this letter is that Corinth was a large city. Some people called it the Vegas of the ancient world. Large city, lots of, um, lots of uh, kind of diversity and socioeconomic stuff going on. Um, but also, importantly, Paul has been, if you think about it, this is the second letter to them. It, it, it evidences a long relationship. Paul has known of this church for a long time. They've gone back and forth. They've been through very difficult stuff. So he's known them for a long time, and he's calling them into this deeper life, uh, which is what we're going to talk about right now. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, kind of each verse and comment on each verse individually. But Paul, Paul, to the Corinthian community, says, Thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. This is going to take a little bit of contextual kind of unpacking, this phrase triumphal procession. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what's, what, what he's uh, referring to culturally, um, because this was a very known thing in the Roman world. So this is an image um, that I pulled of a Roman triumphal procession. This is a common thing. So part of what would happen is in Rome, and remember Corinth is under the Roman Empire in the broader Greco-Roman culture, uh, Rome would, after, particularly after a military victory especially, um, or just a political victory or change, they would celebrate the triumph publicly through a parade. And this is what's depicted here in this ren- uh, rendering. Um, so the first thing to note about this triumphal procession, this is almost too obvious to point out, but it's public just by virtue of it being a procession and a parade, it's public. It's in front of people. Um, it's easy to kind of gloss over, but it would, it's kind of pointless to have a parade where no one is. <laughs> That's not really, it's not really how it works. Um, so Rome would have this parade to celebrate the triumph, the victory that they were commemorating, but there's kind of twofold, there's a twofold purpose here. One of them is obvious, one of them is a little less obvious, um, but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. The first one is to glory, bring glory to Rome, right? If, you, if anyone's ever seen pictures or even maybe been to Rome, you know that the, the, lar- the arches, the um, triumphal arches, they would actually parade and end, end in those arches because that was just a very, very, in the capital city of Rome, it was just, everyone look at us, look at how powerful we are. It's to bring glory to Rome. That's the, kind of the first uh, obvious kind of impulse here. But the second one is to bring shame to the defeated, right? So glory to Rome and shame to the defeated. And if you look closely, the far, part of the reason I grabbed this image specifically is because the, the ones on the left, that little group on the left, can anyone see what's going on there? The farthest, the farthest left, that little clump of people. You notice the, the wrists behind the back? Um, the people there are bound. The wrists are bound because they, are, they represent the defeated people, right? So this could be uh, generals or political leaders or of the group that was defeated in, in battle, whatever, um, they would be paraded. And in this rendition, you see that they're at the front. They're at the front of the procession. So the defeated people, the, the purpose here was to bring shame and attention to the people who were defeated by Rome while bringing glory to Rome. It's, a, it's kind of a double, double-edged sword. So bringing glory to Rome and shame to the defeated publicly. It's a procession. Right? This is a powerful dynamic. If you, if you think about this and you're a, an average person in Rome and you're watching these parades, what, what kind of stuff is going to be internalized in you? Like you're, you're going to start saying, I, I don't want to be in that group. <laughs> I don't want to be in the group that's bound up and paraded through the capital city here. So whatever I need to do to not be there, that's going to be kind of just how I live my life. Right? 
I'm going to stay on the good side here. Um, Public shame, public glory. And this can feel, I would say, this can feel like eons away. We're, We're very culturally and geographically and even temporarily in time separated from this in a way. But I would argue that a lot of these dynamics are still very much at play in our culture. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this guy. Uh, John Ronson, he wrote a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Has anyone ever heard of this or seen his TED Talk? It's, yeah, it's actually a really good TED Talk. I would encourage you. That's what that image is from. I'd encourage you to watch it if it's interesting to you. But this book is all about public shaming in social media, right? So probably some people have heard this or, or seen this happen. But there are people, and he chronicles this in his book, there are people whose lives have been ruined by social media, especially Twitter shaming. Right, someone tweets a, a dumb thing, a dumb joke, a, you know, in, a joke in bad taste, something, whatever. Um, and what's what's chilling about this is these people who have gone through this. They might be someone who, they might have 50 followers on Twitter. They might be just not not a celebrity, not anyone known really at all. But something happens, something takes place in the public consciousness, and then this tweet gets retweeted and retweeted and retweeted, and everyone starts piling on and talking about how terrible this person is. And then part of what happens is these Someone who's been subjected to this, um, wherever they work, they, they get fired because that person can't be associated, that company can't be associated with that person anymore in the public consciousness, right? They get fired, and they usually can't get more jobs because as soon as you Google this person's name, this, this is what comes up, right? So people literally have just, they've been, they've been just trounced by this shaming public consciousness. Um, this is something that he's documenting in this book, and he's pointing to his social media. It's a very, very deleterious effect in our culture. So anyways, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I just am trying to draw the connection that this shame, glory, public identification with that and public avoidance of that um, is very much at play in our culture today. And so what I'm trying to drive home here is that when Paul talks about being in the triumphal public procession of Christ, this has a very real application to our lives today, even though we're not in Corinth in the first century. But I think a lot of this begs the question then, if we're in Christ's triumphal procession, and if this is referring to this procession in Rome and glory and shame and all that, what exactly is the triumph of Christ? <laughs> what has Christ won? What are we processing about? And also, what then is being shamed, right? What's the triumph and what's being shamed? Well, interestingly, this same Greek phrase, the same exact Greek, Greek phrase of triumph, it doesn't happen very much in the New Testament, but one other exact same place it happens is in Colossians. Colossians 2.15, in which Paul says, listen to this, with everything I just talked about, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The rulers and authorities have been shamed by the cross and the victory of the resurrection in the triumph of Christ. Another way when I see the phrase rulers and authorities, another way I like to think about it is just the way the world does things, right? The spirit of the age can be literal rulers in terms of politics, but it's, it's, more, it's more like just kind of the, the zeitgeist, if you've heard that phrase. It's, it's the, the principalities. It's the way the world functions, the way that humans run the world. The way we run the world has been put to open shame by Jesus on the cross. Because the Lord of glory came amongst us and we executed him. Right? The, the, the embodiment of divine love who did no sin was convicted and executed as a criminal. That is shaming to us because that's what we did, right? And yet Christ triumphed. So another way I like to think about this is Paul is being super subversive here. 
He's saying the way the world operates, the rulers and authorities, the systems of the world, the spirit of the world, when left to humans, when left to the fallen humans, the way the world operates needs to be fundamentally subverted. And Paul believes that this is precisely what Christ did. This is precisely what God did in Christ. So this triumphal procession that Paul is saying, Paul is saying, you, 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 you know, we are captives in Christ's triumphal, triumphal procession. We're the ones who are bound, you know, our hands are bound in Christ's triumphal procession, so to speak. That procession, remember, that procession, that parade, that victory parade is being led by that executed person, being led by the crucified one. And remember, crucifixion in the Roman world was also a very shaming thing. It was public and it, it was displayed to shame the one who was crucified. And that's the one who's leading the triumphal procession that we find ourselves in today as the church. So what Paul is doing is Paul is taking the, the, the most humiliating and shaming thing that Rome and, could do and turning it into a symbol of victory. That's the subversion. That's the inversion of what's going on. It's like uh, if someone could take that, that Twitter shaming thing and make that the, victor, the victory, like that person won, you know, the person who's gotten piled on and whose life has been ruined, they're the ones who won. That's kind of what Paul is getting at here. The one on the cross, he's the one who is blessed by God. He's the one who is victorious. He's the one I am with. He's the one that I am going to be proudly, publicly associated with is that guy. Not the centurions, not the emperor, not Caesar, that guy. This is scandalous. It's actually kind of offensive, right? It's disturbing. Because we're so caught up in the glory and shame dynamics that we like to perpetuate as people. But Paul is just chucking out that whole system. So this whole idea, I'm spending a lot of time on this first verse. <laughs> um, the whole idea of being captives in Christ's victory parade here, this procession, it helps me. It, it's, well, it does a lot. It's really um, a powerful subversion of all these things. But one of the things that helps me correct from, from my misunderstandings of growing up um, is the idea that I am being led by Christ in this. It's not something I need to force. It's not something I need to muster up. It's not something I need to take on myself. But I am being led in this procession through my, by my king, who was crucified. So rather than feeling pressure to manipulate or coerce, or what, that pressure word that keeps coming back that Melody brought up, rather than feeling that, that pressure, then the task is to just be faithful to the one who's leading us. Live faithful. Live a faithful life in that procession, following the crucified one. That's really freeing to me. I don't know if that is, strikes you as, in that way, but that's freeing to me. I'm being led by my crucified king. But there's another dynamic then in these verses that I want to explore, um, which is the notion of an aroma or a fragrance, and I alluded to this in my prayer earlier. Um, in the next verse, this is maybe many of you have heard this, is a pretty well-known passage. So after commenting on the triumphal procession, Paul says, God is using us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Again, public parade, public procession. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Listen to this. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. I want to unpack this just a little bit. Because God's intent by uh, calling us into this uh, cross-shaped cruciform life, this public parade, is for that to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere. And this, is, this gets into the, what I was trying to 
comment on earlier about the um, natural engagement, our natural engagement with the world, our natural um, outreach as by virtue of the way we live. So I want to talk about this, this aroma idea. Um, again, I'm, I, lo- I love words. I love kind of seeing how words function. And it was striking to me that there's one other, this is another pretty rare word, this word for fragrance and aroma in the New Testament. And there's one other story in which this shows up. And it's this story from John 12. I liked this rendition of it. John 12, this is, if you can see it, it's Mary emptying out the perfume onto Jesus' feet. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Um, if you know that story, it's been helpful for me to have this image in my mind because in that story, Mary empties an expensive bottle of perfume all over Jesus' feet. And it uses, it says that the aroma kind of rose up, the aroma of the perfume. Um, I found that really striking because the aroma of that perfume, it just kind of, it, it, it seems to me as though it just filled the room, right? It just kind of poured out. But also, it was an offensive aroma to some of the people in that room, if you know the story. Judas, in particular, was offended that that expensive perfume wasn't used for something to help with the poor or whatever. You know, so the, the act of emptying out this, this perfume, which an aroma just rose out of the act, some people found it scandalous. I found that just super striking when I'm thinking about us being led in Christ's victory parade that's shaped like the cross, which was the most shaming act that Rome could do to a person. Um, us walking in that, what, what Paul is saying is that us being led in that parade by Christ will bring an aroma through the world that some people will find offensive and scandalous. But also, an aroma, just like in the story, an aroma is not something that's easily hidden or covered up. It's not something that is easily hidden. It's also not something that you need to force. This gets me back to my initial example, like me forcing my interactions with people to kind of try to make things happen. And that this is not how aroma works. Aroma just kind of comes off of you. Um, I was thinking about, I used to work at a summer camp, um, and man, I hated the middle school weeks because uh, when you're in a when you're in a cabin with eight to twelve middle school boys who have a chance to not shower for a week, um, and but they all bring axe, or at least I don't know if axe is still a thing. But when I was doing it, they would all bring axe. So their shower, yeah, some people know what I'm talking about. Their their showers were morning axe axe sprays. So eight eight to ten different guys with different smells of axe waking up in the morning and all spraying it all over themselves. Anyways. Um, I could not help but think about that experience of aroma. Uh, so it's not something that's easy to hide, but it's not something you need to force either. It's not something that you need to kind of drum up or make happen. Your aroma comes out of you. And so what I want to say then about this is when you are thoroughly formed by something, anything, when you're thoroughly formed, when you're, um, your affections, your imagination, your desires, your hopes, when you're formed by something, by a, by a belief or, or, or a dream or whatever, when you're thoroughly, deeply formed by something, that creates your aroma in the world. That is what pours out of you. So I would suspect that whatever you're deeply formed by, those people around you who are close to you know it by your, quote, aroma. You don't need to manipulate conversations you know, and interactions in that sense. Personal example for me. I don't... I don't need to force myself to talk about the latest book I'm excited about reading uh, or maybe the latest board game I'm excited about playing. Those of you who know me know this about me. That's part of my aroma. This is the things I'm passionate about. Um, My poor wife has to listen to me rant and rave about books more than any person probably should be subject to. Uh, But this is, whatever it is for you, those are kind of silly examples. Um, But on a deeper level, what you actually really hope for the world and the way you live, therefore, is going to be your aroma that you bring around wherever you are individually, but also corporately. So like as a, as a church, as a family, as a community, 
um, I've been asking myself, what kind of aroma, so to speak, do we give off in our city as a, as a people? Um, the leadership team had a great conversation, um, I think two or three months ago, about kind of just who are we, who are our values, or what are our values, who are we as a community? Um, and one of the things that kept coming up was that we are a, val- we are a community that values um, sincerity, kind of a casual sincerity. We're not a community marked by pretense. I think we don't, we don't put up a lot of pretensions. Um, and that's a positive thing. I think that's part of our aroma, so to speak, as a church. Right? We are people that value an authenticity. In, in, in our faith, in our way we practice religion, we want to be sincere and be presented as sincere. So, with this idea of aroma, combining these ideas of aroma, fragrance, and victory, parade, public procession together, um, what I want to say is that Christ's victory parade, then, and the aroma of that in the world, does not smell good to everybody. I alluded to this earlier. Christ's victory, because it's a victory through a cross, through an instrument of shame and condemnation to the world, Christ's victory doesn't look very victorious to everybody. The cross and a life of discipleship that is devoted to the way of the cross, the cruciform way, when that's rightly understood and embraced and lived out, especially in community, when we live that out, that life gives off a pungent aroma that does not does not leave room for very neutral reactions, I think. One example. You can probably think of a lot of examples. Someone, an individual, a person who's idolatrously bound up in establishing their own kind of earthly glory through wealth, through hoarding finances and squeezing finances out of their career or out of other people, someone who's idolatrously wrapped up in that, will find the fragrance of a generous, selfless, cross-shaped life very repugnant. Right? Similarly, someone who's idolatrously bound up in maybe political coercion or realizing a certain political vision of the world and desperate to do that, to use political power to reshape the world in a certain way, or to be aligned with a movement that does that, someone who's just desperately wrapped up in that image of life, will find the generous, selfless, self-giving, cross-shaped, cruciform way of being very repugnant to that as well. So you can see, hopefully you can see how the life of Christ's victory parade, the aroma of that, how that starts to um, spark reactions in our world. And so what I want to end on here, under this whole theme, I love that Paul goes here next. And he says, after all this, he says, who is equal to such a task? We are the ones that God is using to spread the fragrance of Christ through the world, but who's equal to that? That's it. Another, the, I think it's Peterson in the message just says, like, basically, who can take on this responsibility? <laughs> this is a big deal. And I love that he brings us here, because so many times when we talk about things like outreach, evangelism, witnessing, whatever, um, it can feel like just compounding that pressure and burden and chore that I started talking about at the beginning. And that's powerfully not where Paul goes in this letter to Corinth. He makes it very clear that it is God doing that through us, not us. The proof that this is even happening is the renewed hearts of the people in the church living these lives. 
anyone's ability to do this, anyone's ability to do this, comes completely from God. And he says this explicitly in the next chapter, a few verses down. He says, it's not as though we are qualified in ourselves to reckon that we have anything to offer on our own account. Our qualification, another, another translation uses the word competence, our competence, our ability to do this comes from God. So in other words, and I started, I think when I spoke on worship five weeks ago, I, I said we can't control God's renewal. We can't summon it or manipulate it or make it happen. And this is very reminiscent of that because God is the one who does the renewing work. God is the one who's committed to it, and God is the one who does it in the entire world, in and through his people. So as I spoke about in the Sermon on Worship, as, as we locate God as the only source of our salvation and renewal in, do, in our acts of worship, and as we ask God to bring heaven on earth in our acts of prayer, that, that is part of why it's so important for those to be rooted at the beginning, because those acts and those uh, patterns of behavior bring us keep bringing us back to the fact that this is God's work. This is God's work. Not our work, although God calls us to participate in it. It is God's work foundationally. God is doing it. And thank God that God is committed to it because God is more committed to it than I am, right? God is more committed to the renewal of the life of this world than I am, if left to my own devices. But I really believe... I really believe to the extent that we experience this type of renewal that we've been talking about, I really believe we will be a community that spreads a fragrance of Christ in a genuine, natural, integrated way by just the way that we live. By our commitment to the the procession, Christ's triumphal procession in our city, our life as a church will spread a fragrance of Christ and that will be our engagement with the world. That will be our powerful engagement with the world. And God will use that to spread the knowledge of him around our city, around our state, around your workplaces, around our neighborhoods, in our families. And this, to think back to my opening example, this all, I think, is, a, is liberative. It's freeing. Christ is the one who leads us on the procession. God is the one who's doing the renewing work. The Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us sensitive and alive to these dynamics through the course of our interactions. So I, I'm going to end by just saying that before we go to communion. I have a abiding hope, an abiding vision for us as a community in all of this. I hope that we can continue to be a family that trusts, trusts so deeply in God's victory in Christ in the cross, just trusts so deeply in that, that we are proud to be associated with it, that we're proud to be captives in that triumphal procession. That we trust that even though it's, on the surface the cross doesn't make sense, on the surface the cross looks like an ugly defeat, but that we, through faith, trust that the resurrection is on the other side of it, that we would live into that so deeply that we would be a community that is marked by this natural, genuine fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to a culture that I think will react strongly to it, sometimes negatively, but sometimes surprisingly positively. But regardless, that we would, we would live as captives to the one who was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again. Let me pray.
Lord, we proclaim this morning your victory on the cross. Um, We proclaim your wisdom in spreading the knowledge of Christ through the church today. Lord, I pray we'd be faithful to that call. And we repeat Paul's question. I repeat Paul's question. Who is equal to such a task, Lord? We confess our inability to do that on our own devices, but we pray for your spirit to enliven us. We pray for renewal um, that would mark us as a community. And Lord, I do pray for the knowledge of you to spread deeply in our city. I pray that more would come to know you through the life of this community. I pray that in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, We're going to transition to communion, uh, communion, so um, I'll invite uh, maybe Doug, if you can come up, um, hand them out. Um, And Joey, maybe if you could help Doug hand out, I don't know if you're able to, hand out communion cups. Um, But they're going to bring them around. And I'll invite you to, I want you to reflect as as they're coming around with the cups. Reflect on this image of the parade. Actually, maybe I'll put it back up. I invite you to reflect on this image, but insert Christ and the cross as the head of the image of this parade. And remember that as we take these elements together, we are doing this act in remembrance of that act, that the the cracker and the juice point to the broken flesh and the spilled blood of Christ, who leads us in this. This is why communion is so important, why we come back to it week after week, because this is what grounds and roots our faith and our practice in a specific action of God in history. And he is the one that we follow, he is the one that we seek to be faithful to, and ultimately he is the one that can and will and does renew us. So I invite you to wait until everyone has their cup, and I'll guide us through taking it together. And Ethan, you can come up and start playing if you'd like. We're going to sing one more uh, chorus after this. Go ahead, and I'm going to read a short section from the Gospel of Luke. Go ahead and open um, open the cups. Um, take the wafer out of the top, and you can dip it into the juice. From Luke 22, Jesus is with his disciples in the last night. He was with them, and he says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I will not drink it again until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So I invite you now to take the cracker and the juice. Do this in remembrance of the one who leads us in this triumphal procession even today.